It happened overnight. It was February 7th, 1895. The sun set in the evening, a familiar early nightfall in Florida winters. In the Daily News published out of Pensacola, Florida, Supreme Court filings and maritime updates were published. On the third page, the headline reads, Oh, what a blizzard. The unnamed journalist based out of New York writes, quote, The night was one of the coldest ever experienced here. The thermometer at 6 a.m. registered five degrees below zero, end quote. In Boston the same day, it was reported seven degrees below zero. In Buffalo, New York, it was at 13 below, and in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, the thermometer read 20 degrees below zero. It was a staggering cold snap at the end of winter, and northerners were warning their neighbors to the south, the cold is headed for you. Next. On the fourth page of the Daily News on February 7th, below an update of local police court happenings and above a story about one Henry M. Flagler, there is a brief note. It reads, quote, Cold wave coming. The following telegram has been received from the chief of the Weather Bureau, Washington, D.C., February 7th, 1895. Severe cold wave approaching with north to northwest gales. The temperature will fall 20 degrees or more. Severe freeze in northern Florida lasting two or three days. End quote. A few inches above that, a note in the forecast reads, quote, The most severe cold wave of the season is now approaching. It will equal, if not exceed in severity, the cold wave of last December. Gardeners, fruit growers, and all dealers in perishable products are cautioned to take prompt action to prevent damage by freezing. End quote. Sometime after that early sunset, in the night of February 7th and February 8th, the mercury and thermometers around Florida fell rapidly. For nearly two straight days, the temperature sat well below freezing. In an article in that same paper, the Daily News based out of Pensacola, on February 9th, 1895, a simple headline reads, The Cold Wave in Florida. The article goes on to say, quote, The blizzard has wrought havoc in Florida. Thousands of acres of young vegetables are killed. End quote. They reported a thermometer read of 14 degrees in Jacksonville. In Jupiter, the thermometer hit 28 degrees. Around Tampa, quote, it snowed from 6 a.m. to noon, and the inhabitants marveled at the unprecedented freak of King Winter, end quote. In the Tampa Tribune on the same day, the front page reads, quote, the freeze is on in dead earnest, and it has a death grip on Florida sure enough, end quote. The cold was just passing when these articles were going to press, the damage statewide still widely unknown. They didn't know it on the day, but this was the beginning of the end. Citrus would take decades to recover from this, and many towns and communities would be permanently changed or even wiped off the map. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Today is February 7th, 2022, 127 years after the day the freeze came for Florida. For the first episode of the year, for the first episode of this season, I want to talk about the Great Freeze, one of the most essential moments in Florida history, a turning point for everybody and everything in the Sunshine State. Before we get into it, I want to tell you a little bit about the people that I worked with on this episode. They are some old familiar faces that I'm glad that I got to work with again. First off, I spoke with Brigitte Stevenson, the curator at the Sanford Museum, 
She pulled so much research for me to help pull this episode together. We had an amazing time chatting about the freeze, discussing the things that we found in the research articles. So if you are in Sanford, if you want to learn more about my amazing city, you have to go speak to Brigitte Stevenson or visit the Sanford Museum. So a huge, huge thank you to her. Another huge thank you goes out to Melissa Praco at the Orange County Regional History Center. She's been on the show many times and we got to chat at the History Center with, I mean, literally a mountain of research that she pulled for me. Letters and books and articles. It was so great getting to read these things, get a ton of research and quotes for you to hear. So you're going to be hearing a lot of quotes and information. Know that those are coming from Brigitte Stevenson's compilation of research and Melissa Praco's compilation of research. This episode would not exist without their help. So thank you to them. Go visit their museums. They are my favorite things in Orlando. Okay, a friend and listener of the show recently asked me what period of Florida is my favorite to write about, and I told her the end of the Civil War to the beginning of the First World War, so basically 1865 to 1914. It's when some of the most fascinating things happened to Florida, from the railroad boom to Reconstruction. So much changed about us in that period, but honestly, nothing in the time that I have written this show, the nearly four years of writing, has quite fascinated me like The Great Freeze. I'm sure I'll talk about it many times in years to come. It was two separate cold fronts, about a month and a half apart from each other. They ripped through the state and everything changed. The first front was in December of 1894. The second was in February of 1895. There are so many different places and people affected by this story. And so I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about the day itself, February 7th, February 8th. But it's important to note that this was the second of two freezes. When the first freeze hit in December, People were stunned by it. It was devastating. It had a massive impact on the economy, on the culture around people. I mean, people just left afterwards, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But what really matters is after that freeze, which was at the end of December in 1894, we go into January of 1895 and people start to think about the future. They start to, you know, cut their losses, think about the things that they've been through, and they start to go, all right, what can we do to recover from this? And and so they plan for the future, and then another freeze hits. It's unfortunately an all-too-familiar experience nowadays. We are used to this sort of thing, expecting something horrible to be over, and then it just comes back. But we'll come back to that, like I said, in, in a few minutes. But one of the things that was most stunning to me as I was preparing this episode was... As I am recording this, we are at the very end of a very strong cold snap. Go to the newspapers and you will see images of oranges on branches of citrus trees with literal frost hanging off of them, little icicles hanging off of oranges. It's because the last weekend of January saw actual freezes again. Now, the freezes, I will note, did not go as far down as the 1894 and 1895 freezes, but still, it's been 127 years since the Great Freeze, and we are still seeing things like that. It's not a thing that suddenly happened randomly in 1895 and never happened again. It's happening right now. In fact, there is an article in the Lakeland Ledger by Paul Nutcher that talks about Polk County growers who are literally having to deal with a freeze. It was a great concern for them because specifically the crop of Valencia oranges were in extreme danger. A grower named Christian Spinoza was interviewed by the ledger to talk a little bit about this freeze and he said that quote as long as the temperature doesn't dip to 28 degrees or lower for four hours his remaining orange crop should be spared end quote. So we're talking about 
maybe saving orange trees. We, we have no idea what kind of weather we're going to be in for. It could drop below that. It could have been well above that and everything would have been fine. But there was uncertainty with this freeze coming in. Now, what's important to note here is that this is a farmer in 2022 talking about predicting the weather, being able to care for his oranges, being able to predict what's going to happen to them. We live in the modern age. Our technology and ability to predict weather is infinitely more accessible than it was 120 years ago. We can't even begin to imagine how little we were able to predict the weather back in those days. Now, Imagine that is the case, and imagine what we are dealing with historically, especially at a time when agriculture was our number one industry. It was basically the only industry for a lot of people. This was a big conversation that happened after the December freeze, so, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the first part of the freeze. It was late December 1894. So after the end of the American Civil War, Florida sees a lot more people moving to the state and, and looking for opportunity to grow agriculture, for farming to be their essential business. With so much land available to them, people were attracted to the subtropical climates, the ability to prevent things like freezes. So they came to Florida hoping to grow things there. It, citrus had been growing slowly over a long period of time. And there were people coming to Florida specifically to grow oranges in this climate that suited it. I will point out that oranges are not native to Florida. They came over with the Spaniards centuries before this. And our climate is similar enough to climates where citrus is naturally grown, like in South Asia. So when it came time to grow citrus aplenty, Florida was the place to do it. So for decades, it became the spine of our agricultural economy. Whole new towns were popping into existence to grow oranges. That was how essential it was. So then, in late December of 1894, this freeze came. It was December 29th. An article from Mark Andrews in the Orlando Sentinel from 1995 says, quote, Christmas Day 1894 was sunny and beautiful with temperatures in the 80s. Three days later, a cold front from the northwest pushed a strong rainstorm with high winds through the area, end quote. So this sudden change in the weather was not expected because it was so beautiful and then all of a sudden, right before New Year's, it all fell apart. According to a book called Florida to Fleet Street by a man named T.C. Bridges, the weather before the freeze actually came was a beautiful day. He said that the weather was, quote, best of an English June, end quote. And, and he says that the climate itself was a naturally beautiful and tropical Florida weather. Quote, the gardens were full of flowers, the streets full of tourists, old timers had begun to talk of a new boom, end quote. So this was a time of prosperity. This was a time of agriculture allowing cities to develop and grow in ways that hadn't really been the case up to now. So, you know, we talk a lot about how the railroad impacted Florida's economy. The railroad allowed these cities to pop up, but many towns basically relied on citrus as their number one crop, including Sanford. Sanford was a huge citrus growing town, and they had learned all the tricks and trade to sell the very best oranges available to them. In fact, I read an article by a man named Jim Robinson that was published in 2001 
one that said that before the freezes hit, there were growers across Florida who would do this thing where they would wait a little bit longer before they plucked the oranges, a little bit maybe too long, because if you plucked it, it would be a little green, but if you waited a little bit longer, then they would be orange and even more attractive. They would look like oranges, like cartoon oranges. So these towns are basically relying on citrus to exist. And then the Great Freeze began, December 29th, 1894. We have a lot of records of how cold it got, but I'll read a few for you to understand how bad it, it really, really got. So there was a woman named Mrs. Sperry. She was the wife of former Orlando Mayor E. Frank Sperry. She jotted down a few uh, temperatures, and, and these were recorded in the Sentinel Star in 1977. Mrs. Sperry noted, quote, temperatures of 14, 19, and 24 degrees, end quote. That was on December 29th. 1894. In the book Florida to Fleet Street by T.C. Bridges that I mentioned earlier, a man noted a temperature of 18 degrees and said after he reported that temperature, quote, I guess we're finished, end quote. Out in the groves, T.C. Bridges notes, quote, the orange trees were black, the fruit lumps of yellow ice, end quote. So the oranges were just dead. They were just done for. The citrus had turned into blocks of ice. The trees were goners. And it wasn't just oranges at this moment. Pineapples, bananas, mangoes, guavas, every single tropical fruit that we were growing in our temperate tropical climate was suddenly just wiped off the map because nobody could compensate. Nobody could prepare for a freeze like this. And these plants were not designed to grow in this frosty weather. So when the temperature is getting as low as, say, 14 degrees, that is well below freezing and we already have humid air, there was no chance for these fruit to survive. In the Los Angeles Herald, across the country on New Year's Eve, two days after this initial freeze hit, they reported, quote, the damage to the orange and vegetable crops is roughly estimated at $6 million, end quote. That would be a significant number today, but with inflation, that would be over $150 million. That is a staggering number for what was lost basically overnight. Here's another quote from T.C. Bridges, quote, not merely the fruit growers, but everyone in the state, from the grocer to the land agent, was utterly ruined, end quote. Nobody was ready for this. Nobody was prepared for what was coming. And when the freeze hit, it, it killed a lot of trees. According to Mark Andrews from the Orlando Sentinel, the freeze in December killed, quote, the season's entire citrus crop while most of it still hung on the trees, end quote. I think it's important to note here that some of the trees did survive. The fruit, the crop itself was dead, but the trees were not necessarily wiped off the map. That is essential to understand what happened here. Yes, this was devastating. To lose this entire crop of citrus fruit was something that would be nearly impossible to come back from, but the trees were still there. People still could maybe grow a new crop. It would be a lot of hard work and, and people were committed to actually putting in that work. Mark Andrews says, quote, many mom and pop growers who had come to Orange County and invested all their savings in groves moved back north in discouragement. Most, however, dug in their heels and hoped the next year would be better, end quote. T.C. Bridges notes in his book, quote, the amazing thing was the pluck of the people. 
The papers stated plainly that we had been foolish to put all our eggs in one basket and besought us to turn our attention to other crops and instead of bewailing their fate, the Americans, one and all, set to discussing what crops they could best turn to." End quote. So people were obviously devastated and discouraged, but after the freeze was gone, the new year came, 1895, and the growers were ready for the future. They saw that maybe they could bounce back from this. Who knows? Who knows what would happen? So we have to try our best to come back from what has happened to us. So what happens next? What happens to these growers? I think a lot about that month in Florida history a lot. It's January of 1895. Imagine that you are a grower or a field worker, someone whose paycheck and livelihood depends on these citrus plants growing back. Depending on a crop that may not survive, you live in Florida, your work is dependent on Florida's climate to be a certain way, and freeze is just not something that ever crosses your mind, ever. Sure, it gets cold, but most winter crops do need a little bit of cold to grow, including oranges. It never freezes in Florida, so why would it suddenly freeze in December? When it did, out of nowhere, it destroyed everything, and January is the heart of winter. You've still got weeks ahead before the turn of the earth changes and the warmth returns, so all you have to do, all you can do, is wait hoping that your trees will come back and praying that the freeze does not come again. Imagine you're that person. You're probably checking the newspapers every day, waiting for a weather report, waiting for the story of a, a blizzard up north, a telegram from somewhere telling you that the cold is coming. Imagine how anxious you are in case a cold front returns again. But also, you have to keep working. You have to hope that these trees will recover, right? There is so much uncertainty in this period. What happens next? In fact, it was on everybody's minds. It was being talked about in the papers. It was being exchanged in letters. Everyone was worried about the freeze. In the Weekly Tribune based out of Tampa, they wrote a piece about how to recover from the previous freeze. Quote, Some of the benefits derived from the lessons of the freeze are already apparent. It means a decided change from dependence on any one crop. End quote. By this time, early February, it was looking like the crops were going to bounce back. Quote, Since the leaves and bloom are already coming out on my bearing trees, giving promise of a good crop this year, I think ten times more of an orange grove than I did a month ago. This is in the face of the fact that a thousand dollars worth of oranges are now or have been recently laying on the ground under my choicest orange trees. End quote. The writer of this piece recommends diversifying your crop. You should have more cattle, different types of fruit and vegetables, and prepare for a freeze that very well may come again. That article was published on February 7th, 1895. The sun set that night, and the frost came again. The freeze lasted for days. Reports state that the temperature in parts of the state remained below freezing, which I'll remind you is 32 degrees, for nearly two straight days. It was said that when the freeze came overnight, it sounded like gunshots were coming from the groves. 
The Orlando Sentinel reported in 1995, quote, the layer of woody tissue just under the bark filled with sap as the wounded trees struggled to recover. The presence of so much liquid in the trees made them far more vulnerable to a second freeze, end quote. So when that liquid suddenly hardened, turning from liquid to solid, the bark that was over the sap broke from the sheer pressure under the surface, and it sounded like explosions in the groves. Now, I've only heard that in one particular record, but it's an image that's been on my mind pretty much ever since I heard it three years ago. It's haunting, if I'm being honest with you. When that first freeze came, the fruits on the branches died. They turned to ice. Photos from that day show hundreds of oranges lying on the ground of the grove. But when the February freeze hit, when the sap beneath the barks popped, this meant something else entirely. The trees now, not just the fruit, but the trees themselves were dead. Fruit can grow back on a living tree. It may take some time, but as long as the tree is there, the fruit can recover. But a tree takes years to recover, to reach maturity, to be able to grow fruit. And now those trees were gone. Quote, more than 90% of the fruit trees were killed, although some with large root systems would survive once the dead wood was cut away. End quote. 90%. Obviously, some trees were able to survive this calamity, but 90% did not. This is what made it all so devastating, that the trees had time to recover. After December, there was warmer weather, and the trees were allowed to prosper, and then they were lost and destroyed in February. That just made it all the worse. The growers who remained, the growers who had faith in the return of the trees, were now even more lost. All the hope that they had had been frozen solid. Naturally, people reacted in a myriad of ways. Ads were running in the newspaper by Sunday the 10th, advertising their shops as a means to overcome your sadness from the freeze. One advertisement reads, quote, You will forget the cold spell and all the harm the freeze done if you will go to Mass Brothers and see the special bargains they offer on Monday. End quote. Americans have always been the same. We try to see deals when tragedy comes. Government institutions as well closed soon after, quote, the post offices and schools closed and large tracts changed hands through a series of foreclosures and tax sales, end quote. So this was affecting the towns themselves, but we'll come back to that in a minute. I want to tell you two stories really quickly that are very upsetting. They're, they're both stories about suicide. If you do not wish to hear those stories, if, if you don't want to hear about them at all, that's completely fair. I'll announce when we're back, when we're back, so you know where to listen from. I'd recommend skipping forward 60 seconds right now. A man named Carl Abbott was the son of the owners of the San Juan Hotel, a prosperous hotel in downtown Orlando back in the day. He says that on the day of the freeze in December of 1894, when the prices of citrus went down to no sale, quote, About nine that night, a fine-looking gray-haired man in a black frock coat and Stetson hat walked up the street in front of the hotel and looked at the thermometer, groaned, Oh my God, and shot himself through the head. End quote. In Sanford, two months after the February freeze, a man named Carlos S. Wilcox similarly committed suicide. He was also an Orange Grove grower, and according to the Jacksonville Times Union from the time, Wilcox, quote, has suffered from ill health from some time and has been under great mental depression on account of the loss of his fine grove, end quote. It was never confirmed whether or not 
the loss of his grove was the actual reason for Wilcox's suicide, but it was the story being passed around Sanford at the time. If you have skipped ahead to avoid these stories, we are done with our discussion of these two tragic deaths. Welcome back. In a series of letters preserved in the Orange County Regional History Center, a man named Arthur Smith wrote to his fiancée, who also happened to be his first cousin, Beatrice Smith. He talks a little bit about his business as an orange grower. He worked before the freeze, and he assured his love that they would be married so long as his business didn't fail. They were married before the freezes, but according to a descendant of theirs years later, Arthur died in 1905 from an illness called Bright's disease, a type of kidney illness that the descendants suggest came on as a result of the freeze and the loss of his grove. In the Sentinel Star in 1977, they reported, quote, an 1890 population of 10,000 dwindled to 2,481 by 1900, end quote. Agriculture was dead and everyone was leaving. It was estimated a few months later that the total damage from the February freeze was around $10 million. Today, that would be worth over $300 million. Quote, of the eight banks in the county before the Great Freeze, only the first National Bank of Sanford survived. End quote. Only one bank survived of eight. The prosperous era of Florida growers was done. Citrus could no longer keep the state's economy alive. Towns were wiped off the map. Kerr City, which is an abandoned town that I visited back in 2020, was dead. Cisco, up in Putnam County, gone. A town called Ernestville faded into nothing. There are no buildings from the original town of Ernestville still standing. The state, particularly its rural corners, just cleared out. But not everywhere. Not everywhere just picked up and left. On the East Coast, Merritt Island had a grower named Douglas Dummett. We talked about him way back in 2018. It was my first real history episodes, and it was when I kind of fell in love with this story. Douglas Dummett's grove survived the freeze thanks to the beautiful watershed of the Indian River Lagoon. This watershed, the warm water that comes from this lagoon, is now home to the most prosperous citrus region in the state, if not the country, the Indian River Citrus District. All thanks to Dummett's Grove surviving the freeze all those years ago. Similarly, on the Gulf Coast, groves close to the warm water and warm air of the Gulf of Mexico continued to prosper. If you were closer to the ocean, you had more warmth coming to you. Other towns bounced back in their own unique ways. Sanford, of course, started growing celery, and it soon became a prosperous crop and the central identity of that community still over a century later. A woman named Julia Tuttle, you might know her name. She was the woman who basically founded Miami. She had an idea. She took the freeze as an opportunity. She reached out to the railroad mogul Henry Flagler, whose railroads had been creeping down the east coast of Florida for a few years now. Many parts of his railroad saw the impact of the freeze, but Tuttle said that Miami was, quote, where frost was unknown, end quote. Flagler would eventually take her up on the offer of expanding his railroad down to Miami and built it, as he said he would. It boosted to life what is now Florida's most iconic city. That railroad led to the first land boom of Florida's history, a massive turn for our economy about 20 years after the end of the Great Freeze, but we'll talk about that more next week. Melissa Procco found an article from the Weekly Tribune published on Valentine's Day, 1895, one week to the day after the freeze. 
The headline is, Get to Work. It reads, quote, Don't sit down and cry, but get up and try. The freeze has knocked us out again, but it is always better to whistle than to whine. End quote. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's pretty poetic. A little inspiring, I would say. Kind of a kind of a football coach trying to rally the team. Anyway, the author suggests buying seeds, planting them in the ground, maintaining what you have, and getting back at it. The soil is still there, and so are you. Everyone is recovering from the freeze, but now is the time to put in the work for the future. The author goes on to say, quote, Do you see the point? Let the farmers go at it at once and use every effort. Take advantage of every opportunity to recover the lost prestige of the past. No use to complain, end quote. Now, that does read a little bit like suck it up, get over it, move on. But I don't know. I find it a little inspiring that in the face of this immense loss, this total economic disaster, that people were saying, okay, we tried our best to get through this after December and we dug in our heels and survived. And then a February freeze hit and then it destroyed even more. So many people left. Towns just disappeared. But it didn't discourage everyone. Not everyone gave up. They decided to stick their roots down. There's something about just saying, all right, let's get back to work. There's still things to do. It would take years to pay off for these growers, by the way. Trees had to be grown from scratch, carefully maintained and protected. But by 1912, citrus had its first true full harvest of oranges 17 years after the great freeze but we were a different state by then a different culture a different place we took the advice and did diversify our economy no longer relying solely on citrus to make it through but we survived somehow florida survived freezes came again and citrus would just keep bouncing back it would die fall to the earth as blocks of yellow ice and then they'd just keep growing. Citrus still grows in Florida, still, and we still farm it. It is still central to our identity as a state all these years later. Who would have thought that after the devastation in 1895? I'll tell you who thought it. The people who kept growing. That gives me some comfort that they had no reason to believe that things weren't going to get worse again, and yet they stuck around. Another blizzard could come, another freeze, and the people of Florida kept on growing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the premiere of our ninth season. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show or if somehow this is your first episode, welcome. I am very, very glad that you are here. In fact, this is kind of the best episode to get to know the culture, the history of this show. There are so many episodes connected to this one. I'll point out a few that you need to go listen to to learn a little bit more about our state and to learn a little bit more about this 
show. So the first two historical episodes that I ever really did were about the Indian River Fruit District. So I will include links to those. They are so fascinating. I'm still very, very proud of those. Go give those a listen. You can also hear more about Henry Flagler and his impact on the state in the four-part series that I did about the life of Henry Morrison Flagler, one of the most influential people in Florida history. I also talked about the city of Sanford, which is the city that I live in. It is an amazing town with so much fascinating history. You can go check out how celery became their most prominent crop in the 100th episode from this time last year. And there's the episodes about abandoned cities from 2020, where I go and visit Kerr City, a town that was abandoned after the Great Freeze. And I've worked with my friend Melissa Praco on several episodes for this show, including episodes about Mills Avenue here in Orlando, about how Epcot almost became a new city south of Orlando, and specifically about Billy the Swan, Orlando's favorite taxidermy swan. So this is a great jumping in point to go and explore the previous years of this show. If you're looking for new episodes to listen to, those are some pretty great milestones for this show. Thank you for listening. I'm very, very glad you're here. If you are looking for some Wait 5 Minutes merchandise, you can grab some on Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. There is a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. If there are some sticker designs that you would like to see, some motifs or some images from this show that you'd love to have in sticker form, let us know. We are hoping to expand our shop by this summer's season. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and of course, it means a lot to me to know what you like about this show. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I would love to hear what you would love to hear from this show, so let me know. I'm looking forward to it. I'd like to give another thank you to Brigitte Stevenson from the Sanford Museum and Melissa Praco from the Orange County Regional History Center. This episode would not exist without their help, their research, their guidance, their assistance. They are the best. I am looking forward to working with them in the near future. I have got some great ideas for us to make together. So go visit their museums, go follow them on socials, and stay tuned. There will be more from my friends very soon. All right. Next week, I am very excited about this one. It is Valentine's Day, which is obviously a holiday all about love and cherishing those around you, but it's also an important day in American history and Florida history because of a man named Alphonse Capone. You have likely heard his name. Sometimes he's called Scarface, sometimes he's just called Capone. But on Valentine's Day in 1929, something happened that changed the course of American history forever, and whether or not Capone was involved does not change the fact that Capone was in Miami when it occurred. Next Monday, Al Capone and the Valentine's Day Massacre. I am very excited to dig deep into the history of Capone in Florida. You're going to love this story. I will see you next Monday with that episode. Until then, be good to others, be good to yourself, and of course, drink more water. I'll see you next Monday. Stay warm. <laughs>